a listener production. This is From Zero, where I get the real stories behind some of Australia's best business successes. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost half a billion dollars annually without raising a dollar of outside capital. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak with Simon Griffiths from Who Gives a Crap? He said, you know, I've got an idea. Why don't you sit on a toilet and pledge to not get off that toilet until you pre-sell the first $50,000 worth of product? And again, it was one of those ideas that I was just like, it's perfect. You know, why hasn't anyone done this before? Simon Griffiths is one of the good guys of Australian business. As a kid, he didn't consider himself super studious, but he sure was entrepreneurial. His parents were both self-employed. Simon's dad was a management consultant and his mum, a psychoanalyst. So he learned about business from both of them from a really young age. His dad's job meant they travelled a lot when he was growing up. So he lived between Australia and the UK when he was young. After school, Simon went to the University of Melbourne to study commerce and engineering. That's a path that usually ends up in banking or consulting. Instead, Simon ended up founding one of Australia's largest toilet paper businesses and would donate half of its profits to build sanitation facilities in the developing world. And he had a few other businesses before starting Who Gives a Crap. But if you told Simon when he was a kid that he'd be in charge of a company with offices around the world, he wouldn't necessarily have been surprised. You know, when I was a kid, so pre-university, if you asked me what I wanted to do, I said I wanted to be an international business person. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I had no idea what, you know, what that actually meant. But I loved, I loved, you know, the idea of running a business and and doing deals and um, was lucky to have, you know, been brought up um, living in the UK and then Australia and then spending time you know, traveling between the two and seeing a lot of parts of the world. And it, and it felt like I wanted to have a career that would allow me to, um, you know, to spend time in different parts of the world, which was something I'd really got a lot out of as a kid. And so I think, you know, a lot of the role models of, you know, business people when you're growing up in the 80s and 90s, unfortunately, the business people that ended up in the paper were often crooks. <laughs> so they, they weren't the most inspiring of, you know, of role models. I think Richard Branson's probably the exception to that, um, but, you know, it wasn't until kind of the 2010s that startups actually became a thing and entrepreneurship was no longer a dirty word. And so I think when I went to university, I had a lot of the kind of risk-taking nature sort of beaten out of me, which is what happens when you study engineering and, and finance. And um, I got quite good marks. And when that happens, people say to you, you should go and work at all the best firms. You know, you can sort of get funneled into these corporate careers And so I worked briefly as an engineer and went, you know what, I don't want to do that. I worked briefly as a banker and and had the same reaction and then thought that, you know, consulting would be the the one that made sense. And I got a job offer to go and do that and then reflected and and said, hang on, if I hadn't liked, you know, engineering or or banking, is consulting really going to be that much different that it's, you know, it ticks all the boxes? And I realized that it probably wouldn't be. And so that was when I started to think about, what is it that I really care about and that's important to me and what am I good at? And then I started to sort of refine those entrepreneurial roots again. 
Um, but I was at uni for six and a half years. And so, um, you know, at that point, that was a quarter of my life. And um, I'd been risk-taking for three quarters of it and then, you know, had it beaten out of me for a quarter after that. So I had to take some time to refund it. So I guess when you were young, how much did you really want to have, did you want to get rich versus I think pretty early in your life, you I think when you're at uni, you, you spent some time in Asia and Africa or maybe just, just after uni um, and you started getting interested in that sort of conscious capitalism, which we'll talk about a lot um, later in the pod, but how, how important when you were young was making money versus helping other people? Had you sort of formed thoughts at that, that point? Yeah, I think um, it's a really good question. I think the when I was younger, I think I wanted to, to, to have enough money to be able to not have to think about whether I had enough money to, to buy something. That was kind of the goal. And the, the interesting thing was that, you know, I had side hustles, but when I sold things to people, I actually felt really icky and gross about it. Like it made me feel uncomfortable. And I loved, I loved being on the other side of a transaction. I loved buying things, you know, the, the hit of dopamine that, that I got from, you know, from opening a new box of shoes or, um, you know, I still get that, you know, my, we got, my wife got a new iPhone and she let me open it this week because she's like, you get a bigger hit out of this than I do. You should open it. (laughs) And so I think, you know, when I was at university, I'd spent a lot of time, basically figured out it was cheaper for me to spend all of my holidays in Southeast Asia than it was to, to spend it with my parents who lived in Western Australia on the other side of the country. And so I sort of had this passion for the developing world that I didn't really think much about. And it wasn't until, um, you know, I had the, the offer to go and do what I thought was my dream job when I was reflecting on it, that I realized that actually, you know, if I thought about everything that I was passionate about and enjoyed, I loved business, but it wasn't about making money. It was about solving a problem and, you know, satisfying a customer and giving someone else that feeling and ideally doing it with a product that they actually need rather than a product that, you know, just adds more junk into the world. But I wanted to do it to, to solve social problems that I was truly passionate about in the developing world and, and social mobility and the idea that because I was born in a, a, you know, a certain part of the world would be much more likely to have, um, you know, a certain trajectory than someone who was born in a different part of the world. And uh, I want to try and solve that problem using, you know, the skills and the passions that I had around business. And so that's how I kind of ended up in this, um, this blend between, you know, the for-profit world and the non-profit world. So wanting to give people that dopamine hit, but doing it in a way that didn't make me feel icky when I sold them something. And at the same time, working to solve, you know, a broader problem beyond just the needs of the customer. And, was hugely excited, you know, have an economics background, hugely excited by the fact that you could potentially shift someone's preferences and change their incentives by what you do after the transaction rather than before it. And so if we could prove that that could work, it could open up an entirely new way of going about capitalism. And just to get my timeline and the listener's timeline sort of right. So you had this job offer at a consultancy, I'm not sure which one it was, probably for a fair bit of money. Uh, but instead, I think you, did, you went to work in South Africa, or um, is that is that the timeline? So you you knocked back the lucrative role, and, and I'm not sure how, how much you were offered there, but to get paid probably a lot less to work in the in the developing world. Yeah, I think I actually paid to go and do work in the developing world, so, so the you know the equation kind of doesn't stack up less. at all. Yeah, <laughs> but um, 
But what I'd figured out, you know, the, the kind of common thread through my career is just optimize the hell out of stuff the whole way through. And so when I was, when I made the decision to not go and work in consulting, which I thought was, you know, the optimal career trajectory, when I realized it wasn't, I said, how do I make enough money to be able to figure out what the optimal career trajectory is? And so I was tutoring economics and finance at the University of Melbourne and eventually the residential colleges where I found the hourly rate was higher and I didn't have to mark assignments. So, you know, optimize that one. So I did that to kind of get enough money to basically earn the same as my friends who were in grad jobs, but doing it all in the evening. So I worked about 15 hours a week in the evenings and that was enough to allow me to then spend the, you know, 40 hours from nine to five, five days a week to actually work on the stuff that, that I wanted to. And yeah, I moved to, to South Africa to, to work in a nonprofit and instantly, you know, realized that I was hugely passionate about the problem we were trying to solve and the environment that I was working in. But the way that we were going about it was not going to be scalable. And this was a massive, you know, it's education, massive, massive problem. If you're not going to impact the lives of a million people, you're not going to be able to put a dent in a problem like that. And so, um, yeah, started to think about um, more broadly, you know, the types of organizations and nonprofits that, that work to solve those problems. And one of the challenges I identified was that often they're competing against the same pool of funds. So they're chasing the same funder for a large amount of money. One organization will get it and celebrate, but not think about the other nine that applied and spent tons of time, essentially wasted tons of time on that application. And so I wanted to find ways to get more money into organizations doing great work and realized that um, philanthropy is awesome and it's it's a great, you know, it works well, but we're never going to be able to massively, you know, double, triple, quadruple, 10x the size of the philanthropy market it's not possible because we can't get people to give 10x more money than they do today. And so I started to think about how we could get more money flowing into these organizations and realize that if we could tap into the trillions of dollars that changed hands in the economy, instead of just relying on donations, then we'd have a new funding source that was sustainable and scalable. And um, that was kind of what led me to, to what I do today. What were you doing in South Africa? What was your job exactly? Yeah, so it was working in a, an education startup and the idea was that we um, we kind of linked school-aged kids in South Africa to school-aged kids in Australia. And by doing that, we built relationships between them that would enable the, <clears throat> the schools in Australia to fund, you know, life education programs for the school, school kids in South Africa. Um, so it was a, a really cool concept, but probably a, a little bit too early in the, you know, the life of the internet um, there wasn't good access to computers and internet, um, in the South African schools. And so we were manually sort of acting as the conduit between these students in South Africa and, and in Australia. And so very limited in its, in its scalability because the infrastructure wasn't there to support it. And, um, it wasn't clear if, you know, we would find product market fit without, um, that infrastructure being there to, to show whether product market fit was, was possible or not. Um, and so that was the, the the challenge there. How much did working with these young kids in South Africa, I imagine most of them would have been underprivileged rel- relative to what you'd grown up with. How much did that impact you? So seeing potentially poverty on a, on a pretty wide scale, did that, has that sort of impacted how you've, how you've behaved going forward or were you always sort of that way inclined anyway? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the the the, the big things there was realizing that, um, and this kind of relates to the sanitation problem as well, that so much of um, what I had taken as um, you know part of everyone's education system did not actually apply in you know in in the environment that we were we were teaching in, in in South Africa and so a lot of the life lessons that you know I thought everyone in the world would receive did not you know did, did simply not get taught in in that classroom and that's the same challenge that we have with the sanitation problem so it's easy to assume if you've grown up with a toilet that everyone in the world understands the importance of you know washing away their excrement and making sure their hands are clean and washing your hands before you eat food. But that is something that is drilled into us, you know, in the Western world from a young age, and it takes many, many years to master. And often that education is not present in the way that it needs to be in the environments where the sanitation problem exists. And so a big part of the problem is not just access to toilets, it's actually access to education and the knowledge that goes with why um, sanitation is important because it stops you from getting diarrhea-related disease. Simon came home to Australia, motivated to continue helping people. In addition to his experience in South Africa, he already had a background in the charity space with his first business called Ripple. Ripple was a click-to-give website. Users would visit the website, click on a charity, get shown advertising, and 100% of that ad revenue would go to the charity of their choice. But the global financial crisis hit not long after they launched the business, and they couldn't survive without pro bono support. So they had to shut down just a few years after launching. And then, after returning from South Africa, Simon set up another not-for-profit, this time a bar and band room in Melbourne called Shabine. They imported beers and wines from the developing world, and profits would go back to the country of origin. So if you bought a beer from Ethiopia, the profit would support a cause back in Ethiopia. And everything was going really well with Shabine as well, until they realised that band room backed onto a police station. And the police made things difficult, and eventually they were forced to shut down. Both Ripple and Shabine taught Simon valuable lessons about the not-for-profit sector, and he applied those lessons when he started thinking about who gives a crap way back in 2009. What I realised with Shabine was that, you know, the business would be limited in its impact because you can only fit so many people into a bricks-and-mortar business, whereas with um, I wanted to find a business that anyone, regardless of where they were, regardless of whether they drunk alcohol or, you know, what they did on the weekends could be a part of. And so I was thinking about um, consumer packaged goods and one day walked into the bathroom, saw a six-pack of toilet paper and had a quarter-second epiphany, you know, sell toilet paper, use the profits to build toilets, call it who gives a crap. I called three friends. They were all like, this is an awesome idea. You've got to do it. And the third friend said, I've just finished at Boston Consulting Group. I want to come and help. And so that was our, our first co-founder that, that joined the team. Um, and so, you know, I think the best ideas are the ones that people say, I can't believe no one has done this before. You know, when you get that reaction out of someone, it's kind of a sign of the potential of word of mouth and the potential of product-led growth because customers will be excited to tell other customers about what you're doing. Um, and so that was, you know, all three businesses that I ran had that same potential in them. And that's how we knew they were good ideas with who gives a crap the thing that people said, you can't do that was the name, you know, 50% of people said you can't call a toilet paper company who gives a crap. And 50% said, I love it. You've got to do it. And so that, you know, again, that's usually a good sign. It's polarizing, which means that it will strike conversation. Yeah. 
none of you guys had worked that much in data. Well, D2C wasn't that big a thing. Obviously, you had big brands, but but the Warby Parkers and and these famous the Allbirds, they they I think you probably beat those guys. Or Warby Parker was pretty small. There's been a wave of D2C in the states, but even in Australia, you guys are one of the few. Probably thank you. The other guys are pretty comparable to you guys in some ways. But so you had this idea. How did you get the product, and how did you find your customers? Yeah, so um, you know the. 2012 was was 2010 was the idea the end of 2009 actually was the idea so pre Warby Parker um, they were 2010 pre Dollar Shave Club they launched their viral video wow. six months before our crowdfunding campaign <laughs> um, and honestly we didn't think we would be you know direct to consumer the term didn't exist it was e-commerce and that that was it we didn't think that people would buy toilet paper online. But when we looked at it, we said they should. You know, this is a product that is awkward to carry home from the supermarket. It's, you know, big enough and expensive enough that we can actually make the unit economics work from an e-commerce perspective, provide people with free delivery, make the product better with, you know, packaging and, and all of the other stuff that the other guys, you know, the incumbents aren't getting right today. But um, the internet was, the world was a different place back in 2010, you know, no one knew what Alibaba was. Shopify was a crappy platform that didn't, didn't really have many people on it. Um, Facebook didn't have a share button. You know, like the Facebook ads, there wasn't any. So the the playbook that exists today, you know, we had to figure that out from, from the start and that took a little bit of time. So um, it was about two years from idea to our crowdfunding campaign and um, the crowdfunding campaign was was probably the first big breakthrough but we tested the idea along the way. You know, the Lean Startup had just come out. We were kind of following that that book of building MVPs um, to get us to a place where where we could get enough eyeballs on it to turn it into something successful. And that was what the crowdfunding campaign was about. So the backstory there was, you know, we launched on a platform called Indiegogo, was the second largest crowdfunding platform in the world to Kickstarter, which, you know, I think everyone knows. Um, when we launched, there had been six crowdfunding campaigns globally that had reached more than a million dollars in value. I think there's probably six crowdfunding campaigns a day that launch now that will reach a million dollars in value. So very different landscape. We looked at, you know, we analyzed those six campaigns and said what made them successful. And they all had either a sexy piece of technology, which we didn't have, we were selling toilet paper, or they had, you know, a media company with millions of followers that they could leverage to, you know, sell them something. We had 700 friends on Facebook. So we said, how do we stand out? How do we get people's attention and, and get their eyeballs on this? And someone working on the campaign, a guy called Lock Hall, who's recently launched a cool company called Vacation Sunscreen that you should check out. Um, he said, you know, I've got an idea why don't you sit on a toilet and pledge to not get off that toilet until you pre-sell the first $50,000 worth of product? And again, it was one of those ideas that I was just like, it's perfect. You know, why hasn't anyone done this before? And so um, I agreed to do it. And, I, think of, and, I think of a few reasons why no one's done that before. <laughs> I agreed to do it and, and said yes while my my wife was working overseas and I couldn't speak <laughs> to her. And then I had to I had to tell her when she got back that I'd signed up for this, you know, this stuff and uh beg for forgiveness but luckily she thought it was a great idea too <laughs> did it hurt being on the on, sitting on a toilet for oh. such a long period because it, it's you must it's like a survivor when you stand on a pole for it's, <laughs> it's pretty hard yeah it was brutal um i think everyone has probably sat on the toilet for 
you know, long enough to discover the, <laughs> the, the pain of sitting on a toilet for too long. So, um, you know, the, the basically we, we tried to hack it. We, we put a piece of timber under the toilet seat to try and make it flat. Um, <sighs> that was good for the first four hours. And then, you know, I started to get pain in my calves. So we had a, a cushion on there, you know, trying to like, trying to do whatever we could to make it comfortable. But after, um, you know, it took 50 hours after about hour you know, 36, I was um, hallucinating because I'd stayed <laughs> up, you know, too long. Yeah. And if you do that, then the world starts to kind of crumble around you. And um, yeah, hallucinating. And, you know, by hour 40, I was in so much pain, but so tired that I just didn't care anymore. <laughs> and that's a really dangerous, dangerous place to be because, you know, you no longer, the warning signals are going off in your body and you you can't you can't listen to them. Um, so yeah, by the end of it, I was kind of standing up every 15 minutes to make sure I wasn't going to get deep vein thrombosis. And, um, when we wrapped up, I had, um, just excruciating calf pain for about three days, which is one of the signs of DVT. So I had to get my legs checked out. And, uh, and then I think the first flight I took to the States after that, um, the pain came back and it turned out that airplane seats cut off your leg basically at the same place as a toilet seat. (laughs) And I'd managed to trigger the same nerve pain. And so for about five years afterwards, um, I couldn't fly overnight on, on planes oh. without ending up in a serious amount of pain that oh. look, looked a lot like deep vein thrombosis. <laughs> wow. I, I presume when you, when you needed to actually use the bathroom, you turned the camera off or turned it around or something like that. Cause I don't- yeah. I mean, that's, there's a funny kind of anecdote there that, um, again, early days of the, you know, of the internet compared to where we are today. Um, we basically every four hours would get reported on the live streaming platform for pornographic material, <laughs> even though I had <laughs> underpants on. And so um, as soon as that happens, the feeder get taken down instantaneously and we'd have to find a new streaming platform to go up on before you know, <laughs> the same thing had happened again four hours later. So every four to six hours, I had you know 10 minutes to get up and stretch my legs while we figured out the tech problems. <laughs> and, um, that was when I could go to the real bathroom and um, yeah, have something to eat. <laughs> Simon had two founders of Who Gives a Crap, Jahan and Danny. Jahan had been working at Boston Consulting Group. He and Simon actually set up the Click to Give website Ripple five years before. From that, they won a spot in an American business plan competition to help incubate social businesses. And one of their mentors in that competition was Danny, who would go on to become their third co-founder. Danny had a background working in a soap company and was passionate about sanitation, just like Simon. Danny and Jahan brought different skills and expertise to Who Gives a Crap to help the business grow in their own unique ways. You know, Jahan's got a strategy background, but he um, is also quite a famous YouTuber in Sri Lanka. Um, so he has a, you know, a creative bone and um, a big YouTube following. And Danny comes from a product design background and got into human-centered design. So he went to IDO.org and worked on the, the nonprofit side of the design thinking consultancy so, so naturally, um, you know, Danny's kind of more customer product focused, Jahan's more um, strategy and numbers focused, but both can speak, you know, the other language. And I sort of sat in the middle, you know, I could, I could speak both languages, but really those guys are, you know, way better at what they do than what I am. And so I could, I could build models, but Jahan would whip my ass at building a model any day of the week. <laughs> and, um, you know, I could, I could, talk brand and um i probably couldn't write copy to be honest but um but you know spoke enough of those languages that i could um help 
you know, support them in, in what they were doing. But we were probably a little bit different to particularly how you build a startup today. You know, we, we were bootstrapped and didn't have any money to pay anyone. And so we all worked two jobs basically. And at the right time, we stepped into the business full time. So that was initially me. I kind of, um, you know, carried a lot of the, the flag through the early parts of finding a manufacturer, doing the crowdfunding campaign. That was, you know, probably 30 hours plus of my week. And then a couple of years after that, Danny joined the business um, full-time after leaving IDEO. And then um, Jayhan actually only rejoined in 2019. So about, you know, six years after we launched and yeah. the timing was, was great. You know, someone... His, it meant that he then got to go to YouTube and worked for Google and, and um, learned a lot more about strategy and digital. And um, then when he rejoined the business, we were able to benefit from you know, all of that extra experience that he'd been able to have. So it was a really great way of doing it. And it meant that um, we were able to bootstrap the first you know, seven, eight, nine years of the business and grow it up, you know, grow in our own way and, and prove out you know, this new business model that um, honestly wasn't particularly investable when when we first got started. <laughs> you know, direct-to-consumer didn't exist and we were giving away half of our profits. Like, <laughs> did, you, did you guys put the equity – how did you guys – I presume did you get the most because you were in the earliest and did the most work initially? How did you guys break up ownership in the early days and was that controversial or was it pretty easy to – Yeah, I think um, – no one's ever asked me this before, but it's a really good story. Initially, Jayhan and I were 50-50 and then he said, you know what, I love this, but I have this passion for television. So I want to go and see that through. And that was when he went over to YouTube. And so at that point, we kind of took his ownership stake down quite a bit. And I said to him, not if, but when you come and join the business again, you know, let's make it happen. I'll give you some more of my ownership essentially and then Danny came in um, with, um, you know, with a, a stake that was kind of similar to Jayhan's. So I ended up having a little bit more of a stake than than the other two, and that sort of reflected, I guess, um, the idea. But but also the early years where I was sort of the the, the person running points, doing everything. Yeah. I think um, there was definitely some hard conversations in there around and some resentment, to be honest, around um, probably on all sides around getting that percentage right. And that resentment probably happened at different points in time. But as a founding team, we've always been very good at talking that through and not, you know, letting that kind of fester and turn into something that can drive a wedge through the business. And I think the, the end result now is that, you know, the business has become successful to the point where, it doesn't matter anymore, you know, like financially we'll all, we've all got more than enough. And, um, you know, for us, our lives are about creating impact. And so, you know, what we'll focus on is, is not buying champagne and, you know, private jets. It's how do we actually give away a lot of this money in the most effective way that we can to create the most impact that we possibly can in our lifetimes. Incredible. Let's go back to the crowd. You've sat on the toilet 50 hours. You've, you've raised 50 grand, which is a little bit of money, not, not ridiculous, but it's certainly something. And you've, you've started production of the toilet paper, but you've, the great challenge of any business is, is revenue and sales. So we can have the best ideas, but unless we can actually sell it, the ideas go down, down the toilet, so to speak. So how did you guys 
go from great idea and great fundraise to actually getting generating demand. Yeah, I mean, this was so the you know even rewinding before the crowdfunding campaign, we were thinking about this. You know, we wanted to demand for us was also less about getting revenue in the door and more about testing whether the idea could work. Is this worth the next five years of our lives? Plus, you know, now it's been a lot more than that. Um, and so the very first test we did was we we got a Shopify store back in 2012. We put up um, who gives a crap, give a crap, and role model. The three variations on the store. We bought someone else's toilet paper from the you know the supermarket down the road. Got some cardboard boxes, and we directed AdWords to those sites to try and see one whether people would buy toilet paper online, and two whether one of those brand names would resonate better and three, whether, you know, who gives a crap was actually a good idea for a name or not. And we made our first sale and, um, you know, I'd, I'd spoken to Australia Post and they said, yeah, you can ship this box of toilet paper anywhere in the country for eight bucks. Took the, the, the box into my local supermarket, uh, my local post office in Fitzroy and said, you know, here's our first order. Can you send it to our first customer in Albany, Western Australia? We'd sold them a box of 48 rolls for 30 bucks. And they said, no problem. That'll cost you $54. I was like, what? Like we just, we're supposed to be giving away half of our profits, not like losing money. Like what's going on? And so, um, you know, from that, we learned that people would buy toilet paper online. The brand name was actually okay. Um, We had to figure out logistics to make this work. And then the next part was how do we get more eyeballs to test this at a greater scale? And so the crowdfunding campaign was we need millions of eyeballs to see whether enough people believe in this. We got our first 1,000 customers, which was great. And then, um, you know, did our first production run, which took eight eight months. I think in March 2013, we started sending those boxes out to our crowdfunding campaign supporters, which was no mean feat. You know, the, the parcel freight, the shipping to customer kind of courier industry in Australia was not set up for e-commerce back then. So that was a, a pretty tough kind of problem to solve. And um, amazingly, you know, again, we didn't think people would buy toilet paper online. We thought that supermarkets would be the channel for us. But amazingly, you know, we had three months worth of inventory in our warehouse without us doing any marketing, any advertising ourselves. Our daily sales doubled from one day to the next. They doubled again the day after that, doubled again after that. <laughs> Five days doubling day on day, we sold out of that complete three-month supply that we had. How much warehouse. dollars was that? Final day, how much were you selling? I've, I've got no idea. It wouldn't have been very much <laughs> <guess>. like, <laughs> compared to now. <laughs> Probably only like, you know, a few thousand dollars, I think. Oh, it's- but Pretty good. Um, for the first five days, yeah. you know, no marketing. Like if you, it, when you looked, the most amazing thing was that we looked online and people were sharing photos of toilet paper on social media, which no toilet paper company in the world <laughs> ever, ever been able to do that. And so we were like, wow, like people love this, you know, this concept. They want to tell other people about it. And so, you know, now this is called product-led growth. Again, that term didn't really exist back then. But we had, you know, when we designed the product, we had a lot of these ideas of um, what if we could, you know, make the packaging so beautiful that it comes out of the back of the cupboard and is put on display? What if we could create packaging that makes it fun to stack up in your bathroom? Um, And there was lots of, you know, how might we or what if we could? Probably 50 of them, that was the one that really took off in a way that was just incredibly meaningful. And so that was, you know, the, the, the thing that allowed us to reach our next 1,000 customers. And 
honestly, the first two years of the company, we didn't advertise and we tripled year on year for those first two years. So you had, I think, you had pretty good growth in your early days. So 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you were growing fast. And then I think 2016, you started selling in the US and the UK, I think soon after. What was, and the US has been a graveyard for Australian businesses historically. Most businesses just don't succeed there. No, we go and get the market right. We think we're too smart and stuff it up. But you guys have had incredible success uh, globally. Can you talk us about how, how you approach the US challenge and, and how you succeeded when almost everyone else fails? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the like the important thing here is that you know all of the big decisions in our business are guided through the question of how do we have the most impact? How do we get to toilets for everyone everywhere as quickly as possible? And so for us, you know, the way to do that is by finding more customers. Um, and so global for us was never a question of of if; it was always a question of when. What's the right timing? And I think in you know 2015, 2016, we realized that if we didn't do it, someone else would, and we needed to get there to get that head start. And so we looked at um, the UK and the US, you know, the two biggest um, English-speaking markets outside of Australia, and said, you know, that's the right playing ground for us. We had reservations about each. You know, we had a, we had team in the US already. We didn't in the UK. We thought the brand wouldn't resonate as well in the US as it would in the UK. But we ended up saying no matter which market we go into, we will always think when something goes wrong that the grass is greener in the other market. We should have gone into the other market instead. And so if we're going to um, find out what is truly a problem with the market that we're in versus a this is a just a straight going global problem, then we should do both markets at the same time. And so that was the strategy that we that we went with. And luckily we we did that because pretty much every single problem we came up against was a a going global problem and not a you know US UK market specific problem. The two classic ways to grow a business is grow vertically and horizontally. So you, you grow markets like you did in the US UK, but also grow products. And you've yep. you actually done both. So you've you were originally toilet paper, but now you sell several products. How has that thinking evolved, and how successful have your paper towel and, and your other products been relative to your core your core product? Yeah, I mean, this is a really, you know, an interesting one from a, um, a strategy, logistics nerd kind of point of view. Um, we thought about new product development early on and we realized that probably the, the biggest driver for it was in Australia. We realized that we were paying to ship a cubic volume of space to our customer and we were leaving about 17 centimeters on the top of every box that that we could use for free that we were essentially paying for, but that we weren't using. And so the, the MPD there was if we can find something that sits on top of the box that is less than 17 centimeters tall, that gets to our customer for free and the margins on that will be astronomical. And so that was the initial driver for MPD and the lightest lift MPD was working with the existing producers that we had to produce more paper products. And so hence, you know, paper towels and tissues were really interesting for us. Um, fortunately, you know, that, that logistics equation doesn't work out the same in, in every country. So that was an Australia phenomenon that doesn't play out in the U S and, and, um, as a result, you know, as people have come and copied us, the incentive structures haven't worked the same way for them as it has for us, um, which has been a part of our kind of advantage. And so then I think once we'd done that, we started to look at, you know, what other MPD could we do? And we tried hand soaps, which felt like a really natural extension, and we realized pretty quickly that MPD is actually incredibly hard and time-consuming. 
um, you're essentially often going from zero to one again. You know, yes, you've got an existing customer list, but you're having to do a lot of the hard work that happens in zero to one. And so um, we said, we can do that. We're good at that. But is it the best use of our time? And we thought that, you know, MPD would be an incremental revenue to the scale of 10, 20% versus going global into new markets where the incremental revenue would be 10 to 20x. <laughs> and so same amount of people power required to do both, and which is why we decided to go global, um, you know, as the next move. Now that we're in, you know, Australia, US, UK, we've opened up Europe in December, just done Canada recently. Now we're doing new product development again and starting to invest a lot more heavily in, in that side of our business. So there's a few things in the roadmap that will start hitting the the virtual shelves in the next 12 months. Exciting. Exciting. And the other thing you, you've worked on, I think, for the last couple of years is, is also starting as a subscription. So going from the one-off purchase to – obviously, Apple's been that great transition the last three years up to triple their valuation because investors value a subscription dollar potentially – seven, eight, 10x uh, transactional dollar. How, how, how have you guys gone with the subscription product? Has it been a, a real growth driver for you guys? Yeah, I think we, we've always had subscriptions on our site because we thought that our product was one that just naturally lended it, itself really well to subscriptions. So that was something that we turned on, you know, from, from day zero essentially. And um, I think what we've, you know, we, we also sell one-time orders as well because we recognize that some customers know, don't want to take a subscription because they travel a lot or um, have guests or might just feel a little bit anxious, you know, not knowing exactly when something's going to show up. They want to be in more control than what a subscription gives them. And so we didn't want to cut those customers out, but often those customers will behave very similar to a subscriber. They order just as regularly, but they do it with a one-time order. And so we, I think, tread this fine line of, you know, we love the subscription product. We think that it actually adds value for our customer beyond a regular one-time order because we can simplify their life by getting that subscription frequency right. But that frequency does need to be highly tailored for each individual customer in the way that a magazine subscription or a razor blade subscription doesn't necessarily have to. And so that's a, a big challenge with our product. Um, that's made us, you know, think about subscriptions a little bit differently to most people. I think where we're trying to go is, you know, commerce that is so frictionless that there's very little difference between having a subscription and, and ordering regularly, you know, from an app, from Alexa, from Google Assistant, from a text message, you know, one click from your last email from us. If we can get to that place in the future, then I think that's kind of the future of commerce. So you, you guys are doing incredibly well. You've had this sustained sustained success for almost a decade, and we get to March 2020, and we have the great to- toilet paper crisis uh, in Australia and to an extent in the UK as well. I think they had it, and people literally fighting in supermarket aisles for toilet paper, and, and there probably isn't many better businesses to be in than a business that sells toilet paper and tissues and, and paper towel. How did you guys cope with that sort of mid-March 2020 when you had the reverse problem that we had, but we had no demand. You guys have probably too much demand. <laughs> so so how did, that, how did that impact you guys positively and, and t- were there any negative impacts to just that incredible change? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was pretty crazy. I think, um, yeah, the first couple of days of March, you know, March 1, our sales doubled on a regular day. March 2, they were up 5x. March 3, up 12x. March 4, <laughs> 30 to 40x. You know, more than a month of sales in a day. Our systems aren't built to deal with 
you know, volume fluctuations that big. And so we weren't actually 100% sure how much inventory we had. And so we, we said, we've got, to, we've got to turn this off because we need to make sure that we have enough stock for our subscribers and our, our business customers who should never, ever run out of product again. And so we, we did that. We turned on an email sign-up wait list so you could find out when we'd be back in stock and thought that we'd get yeah, a few thousand people signing up for that wait list. We ended up with more than half a million people on there, which um, I, as you've sort of hit the nail on the head is, is slightly overwhelming in terms of the, the level of demand. I think at that point, you know, the other thought that we had was, you know, half a million people on a wait list for toilet paper, like what has happened to the world? <laughs> and, and if we're worried about toilet paper here in Australia, in the UK and the US, what does that mean for the countries where our beneficiaries are, where, you know, they don't have access to enough hand soap, let alone toilet paper or, or even toilets. Um, and so I think, yeah, I kind of thoughts went out to, um, the broader community that we that we work with beyond our business, but um, you know our team I think realized that once we got over the the overwhelm, realized that if we could solve this problem and get toilet paper to the most people possible on that wait list, it would ultimately result in a massive donation come end of financial year. And so everyone jumped in and started working really hard to try and figure out how to make that happen. We were basically um, doing handovers, you know. 10, 11 p.m. in Melbourne, Jayhan was in his pajamas handing over to, to Mike in New York in his pajamas to kind of pick up and run with it overnight. And so we were um, kind of running, you know, running like this and figured out that we could repack our big 48-roll boxes into smaller packs so we could send more orders out. We hired and trained 25 freelancers so we could triple our customer service volume and we did that in a week. And then we set up a secret invitation-only version of our website and sent just enough emails out every day to take our warehouses and our couriers to their maximum daily limits, basically before the wheels would fall off. And so we ran this, you know, secret online toilet paper club for about eight weeks, you know, coolest club of all of 2020, <laughs> no doubt, and um, officially made it back into stock, you know, in June of, of 2020, which was an amazing outcome. And at the end of that month, you know, the Australian financial year ending 30 June, we made a, a $5.8 million donation, which was kind of the, the icing on top for, for everyone's work to that point. <laughs> uh, how many of the, of the customers, you obviously had a huge spate of customer acquisition over that period. Has that, do you think that's added, has that accelerated your business faster than it would have just due to the, the massive brand recognition you guys now have? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think that, um, you know, th- that's kind of the the, from a, a purely financial perspective, let's kind of just be clear that we're not talking about, you know, upside um, more broadly than that. But, you know, that's the upside of that equation. Um, the downside of it is that everyone stocked up and filled their pantries. And so at some point you've got to have this, this come down on the other side of it. And so we felt that through, you know, August, September, October, before things started to normalize. And with every round of panic buying, you know, since then, each of those markets has gone through their own panic buying, you know, round two, round three, in some instances more. With every round since then, we've felt that come down happen afterwards. And so that's made demand forecasting, you know, much more challenging than, than what it's previously been. And um, as a result, you know, our cohort performance and um, a few other things are a little bit harder to, to, to manage than, than what you'd hope or expect, I guess. 
I think so. Let's just fast forward a couple of just a couple of months ago. You guys had a, a massive milestone, and your first, I guess, call it your first real capital raise, other than the infamous um, Kickstarter campaign, where you raised forty-one million dollars. And knowing that, you, you actually got support from just some incredible Australian entrepreneurs, the likes of founders of Atlassian, Cultram, Canva, Adore, Giant Leap, Airtree as VCs came in. Uh, you guys obviously have been profitable for for a while, very profitable through 2020 and, and profitable this year. What led you guys to, to raising – you probably didn't need the cash. What, what led you guys to raising money? Was it sort of a secondary as a primary? I'm not sure you ever disclosed the, the valuation, but it sounds like it's an incredible result for the business. Yeah, I think for, for us, um, you know, we, we bootstrapped the business for about nine years. When you're bootstrapping, you tend to fl- fly a little bit closer to the sun than perhaps what you should have done. And I think um, – <laughs> I think through 2020, we realized that that had held us back. You know, we, sh- we could have held more inventory prior to the pandemic and um, we were flying really close to the sun when it happened. And so um, we weren't able to take advantage of, well, that's such a horrible way of, of talking, but we didn't have enough inventory to, you know, satisfy all of the demand that we potentially could have done. And so we realized that, you know, not only could it help us to, to run a better business, but it would also help to future-proof us in the instance that we did see, you know, some some sort of downturn in the future as well. Um, so that was a, a big driver for it. I think the other thing was, you know, we we reached a milestone of, of $10 million donated over our first eight or nine years, which is amazing. But this is, you know, the sanitation problem, there's still 2 billion people globally that don't have access to a toilet. And if you play out, you know, what is required to actually put a serious dent or to even solve that problem, our donations have to be into the billions of dollars. And so we have to figure out how to grow the business way bigger than what it is today. And we're up against, you know, the Kimberly Clarks of the world. And that takes capital to go and to go and do that. Um, so that was another motivator. And then the final one was, I think every business these days has an obligation to figure out how to reduce their carbon to the lowest levels possible we're a, you know our carbon comes from our supply chain and making changes in the supply chain is a very capital intensive process and so we needed a bigger balance sheet to be able to go after some of those you know larger sustainability initiatives that will make us a better you know carbon company but also make us a better proposition for our customers because they know that you know we're thinking about that stuff and taking it seriously and hopefully innovating in ways that that our competitors aren't at the moment and so that's the the broader kind of um strategy around the raise and and also you know the reason why we brought the partners in that we did you know they're all mission aligned believe deeply in in what we're trying to do and and see the upside from things like sustainability in ways that perhaps you know some investors don't amazing i think speak to most speak to a lot of people a lot of successful people and they there's almost there's people who who never donate anything at all let's forget about them then there's a lot of people who take almost take the buffett approach let's make lots and lots of money and then donate it later on in life. And you've taken a third approach, which not many people do, which is obviously you will no doubt be an incredible philanthropist in a number of years, but you're an incredible philanthropist now and up, upwards of $10 million. And that's obviously increasing every year. Where do you think you can drive this business to? At what point do you say, I've taken this as far as I can, I'm going to do full-time philanthropy or what's, I guess, the end game for, for you personally? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, we, as a, as founders, and individuals, um, I think we're in some ways we're quite lucky because we have quite 
a good understanding of what the future looks like. And, you know, for this question, we're all guided by how do I have the most impact? And for, for us, you know, in the, in the near term, it's really about, you know, growing the company and scaling the impact that the company can have. At some point, we might no longer be the, the right people to grow and scale that impact as fast as what someone else could potentially do it. And so we're not precious about, you know, wanting to run this company for, forever. If there's someone who we think can do a better job and take it to a better level than us, we'd love to, you know, to, to talk about that because that ultimately fulfills the goals that we have as individuals. And at some point, um, you know, the other ways that we can have impact you know, there's probably personal philanthropy, but but also um, inspiring other companies to go out and you know rethink the way that they engage in business to have more impact through their own donation models or through sustainability um, is a big part of that as well. And so, the more we can be loud and vocal about some of the stuff that we're doing, and that it's not it's not just about doing good; it's actually really good for business, and it makes sense from a you know a customer point of view as well. That's another way for us to have impact. And then lastly, by mentoring and supporting the, the entrepreneurs that will come after us and hopefully have been inspired by us but can can iterate on what we've done and, and take it to levels that we couldn't even have dreamed of ourselves. And so when you put all of those things together, you know, at some point it will make sense for us to, to let someone else come and, and take the reins. We don't know when that is. We don't think it's today, but, you know, that's the, that's the way that we think about it. And that was Simon Griffiths from Who Gives a Crap? And you've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Our producer is Lindsay Green. Our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Listener.